Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. We're on a roll here over at the Draft Deeper Podcast. Back-to-back weeks with incredible guests. Last week, in case you missed it, we had Chad Ford on from Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. Going over some big board comparisons, early on insights. But this week, I am honored to join by author of the new book, The Mid-Range Theory, Seth Partnow. Seth, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's very weird to, to, to get introduced as someone being honored to talk to me. because <laughs> We're just talking about basketball here. And it's, so it's it, it, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it, it was a lot of work, but it still doesn't feel that serious to, you know, it's, I'm not like a, I'm not like a mayor or something. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to. Then, then tell that to all the people who privately messaged me and were like, holy crap, you're having Seth on? Like, that's amazing. So then, then, then tell that to those people too. You are, you are a respected person in, in the industry here. So don't, don't sell yourself short, my friend. Um, so for my audience, Seth, in case for whatever reason they haven't heard of you, which I'd be shocked if they did it or they haven't seen some of your work, can you just give a brief introduction into who you are and what you've done in your career and where everyone can also find and, and read your work apart from purchasing the mid-range theory? Sure. So um, I guess the, the, the relevant portion is that uh, around eight years ago, I started writing about basketball at my own website and then a website called Nylon Calculus uh, from a primarily an analytical standpoint. Um, I do have a, a background playing basketball, but I've always sort of approached sports from a numerical perspective. I was the, uh, for, for people of a certain age, I was the kid who did, who kept uh, stats on RBI baseball when I was playing it as a kid, you know, before, <laughs> before Nintendo games had the battery that like saved stats, you had to do it anyway. Um, so, but I started writing about basketball from a sort of a stat, a statistical lens, um, you know, the, uh, the, the first season that the NBA had tracking data, which was 23, 13, 14. Uh, available to the public and sort of from that I got noticed by some some folks and started having discussions with teams and eventually I got hired as the director of basketball research uh, by the Milwaukee Bucks in 2016. I spent three plus seasons there uh, then I left to join The Athletic in 2019 where I still uh, write and podcast occasionally and I have recently also uh, Joined on as an advisor to a company called StatsBomb, which is uh, has heretofore been a, a producer of soccer data, but is now moving into uh, nor- primarily North American sports, uh, focused right now on American football. So um, you can find me on Twitter at Seth Part now. Uh, the handle is Anchorage Man because I'm originally from Anchorage, Alaska. So I think that's that is the summary. That is the that is the, <laughs> the elevator pitch. That's that's an excellent summary at that. So. I have to ask the most general question I can, the cookie cutter question. Everybody's probably asked it to you 25 times, but I got to do it on my podcast. Why did you choose to write the book on the topics that you did? So it was sort of interesting. A lot of times when people write a book, they have the book and they pitch it around. And yeah. I was lucky enough that it was sort of the other way around. It was the publisher said, hey, write a book. And so then I had to come up with it. I had sort of come up with the topic. And something I realized is, um, I guess the analogy is sort of for for a band, the first the first album is sort of a lifetime in the making. It's all your best songs you've ever written. 
and it's a little bit of that. It's the, I've I've researched basketball a lot over you know these, this last decade, um, and a lot of it hasn't been exposed to people because you know some of it some of the foundational stuff I wrote on our website that fifty people read. So uh, kind of going back and and getting back to those roots and kind of expanding on it, um, using kind of what I've learned in the interim and and bringing it to a hopefully a wider audience. Um, it was sort of the, the the thought process behind it. There's a lot of a lot of topics involved. I think the book is 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 topical rather than the narrative driven. Uh, I didn't want to try to write Moneyball for basketball because uh, I'm not Michael Lewis, and <laughs> I, you know, as as much as he has inspired a lot of us, um, like knowing one's own limitations is important. Um, so, but I did I. I uh, and just from a standpoint of writing a book that's sort of just what I think um, and not having to, even though I did talk to people for the book, it was not like driven by a story that we've through because I, you know, the way I look at analytics isn't really a one big idea kind of thing. I think it's a um, number of smaller ideas. And I think breaking it up um, sort of fits with how I think, think that, uh, a statistically based approach can can mm -hmm. sort of impact the game is you know a lot of improvements in little topics rather than sort of one big you know aha and what was so interesting about your book I, I do have some questions here that we'll get into that i've tried to frame around uh the draft and scouting because that's really what this podcast is but for for anybody i seriously strongly encourage everyone to go out and buy this book and read it because it truly was awesome to read all the chapters all the sections you have that are really like history building in, in a sense like you go over trends that have emerged and presented themselves over the last 15 to 20 years and you did it in such depth and detail and i it was a thrilling read for me i'm glad i was able to sit down the last few days and read it i won't spoil a lot of stuff in the book including the specific chapter you have titled the mid-range theory which really explains i i, I would feel a lot of why you wanted to to write the book the way that you did but I want to start. So you say you're, you say so yourself up front in your book that you hate what the word analytics has become and that all of the charts, graphs, equations you could present to readers at the end of the day. It's, it's we're just talking about basketball, right? It's just basketball. So in your best words, what is your best definition of what that word should mean and how those in the community should actually view the word analytics when they're talking about basketball? If, if honestly, if, if it was up to me, we would just, we just would start over and come up with different terminology because <laughs> the, the word is so sort of hopelessly bastardized. It's like in, in sort of the broader consciousness, it just, it's like uh basic, it, it too often means, Hey, the nerd said, shoot more threes. And it's, that's, that's both wrong and reductive. And, but at the same point, you just, I just don't want to have that argument anymore. So I would just pick a different, um, I would just pick a different kind of term to begin with. And also like putting a, a specific terminology on it in, in almost nece necessarily like separates it from basketball. There's like the key, these people are doing basketball and these people are doing analytics and they're not the same thing. Yep. And, um, and I don't believe that. I think that this is, that's, that's all basketball. It's not, you can scout with numbers just like you can scout with your eyes. You can do analysis with your eyes just like you can with numbers. And and putting sort of an artificial barrier between those through the use of terminology is is an impediment to, to sort of better understanding, whether it's just for enjoyment of the game or in a more 
directed kind of professional sense uh making making decisions um you know i i wrote a lot of the book sort of from the standpoint of i think i termed it the fantasy gm standpoint yeah uh, because a lot of sort of the public and i have to use the word because we don't have another one but a lot of the public analytics sort of discussion is focused on that sort of that the the the, the you know the roster construction and in-game strategy and contract and those kind of things so that's that's the the sort of the venue that most people are familiar with applying these concepts so i kind of i that is the standpoint which i focused on primarily in in the book so fairly early on in your book you talk about dean oliver's four pillars which two of the eight refer to offensive and defensive rebounding percentage and in trying to pick out some questions that i find relevant to scouting uh, rebounding has become something that's not viewed as an overly positive indicator for prospects transitioning to the league as much anymore. Um, rebounding specialists have kind of gone to the wayside while they may pile up numbers like Oscar Sheetway at Kentucky this year, for example, is a guy that, that I've already gotten tweets about this season. Like, is he a prospect or should he be on big boards? And we don't actually consider those guys NBA prospects in the same way like we used to, or other players who have a more uh, <laughs> or who have... Vanderbilt's counter is is the counterpoint. I would come with, <laughs> come with there is a guy who was just like you know obviously was hurt a lot his his one year at Kentucky, but like just absurd rebounding like numbers, like 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 scale breakingly absurd rebounding numbers. Um, well, so yeah. that's what I was going to say that like yeah, bigs who can effectively rebound the ball on both ends, like generally they, they find a way to make themselves in the NBA rotation. So even though we might not view them as these sexy prospects, they find ways to make contributions in the NBA. So like, how should we as scouts evaluate rebounding and like, what are some indicators we should better understand and remind ourselves of when we're determining importance and context versus just looking at like rebounds per game? But I think it's you start to look at re, like rebounding percentages, and then you you do have to have a little bit of sort of a contextual understanding, you know, relative to position. If a guy is, you know, a guy has a twenty five percent like defensive rebounding rate, but he's a guy who's going to play the three in the NBA and he's playing the five in in college, it's the you know maybe not because that's actually that's for mm-hmm. for NBA NBA prospects that play center that's actually kind of below average uh if, if it's if you know it's a guy who projects as a, as a two who's doing that while playing on the perimeter then you know you might have then okay this guy has something that's allowing him to you know to get the ball like a yep. lot more than most people in his in his uh in his sort of general profile does so that's you know maybe that's athleticism maybe that's you know uh, um you know, feel and, and anticipation. Uh, maybe it's poor competition, which you also have to sort of mm-hmm. take into account. That's part of why the draft is the statistical, just like any analysis of the draft, a statistical uh, approach is uh, much more art than science because there's, you can, you can kind of adjust formally to some degree for quality of competition, but that still is only only so much like there's only so much you can you know you can you can sort of guess at okay well he's he's the most athletic player in the mac where does that fit <laughs> relative to you know so um I, I that didn't really answer your question because there isn't an answer to your question there's no sort of one size fits all to a lot of to a lot of these things it's 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 all heavily contextual and the modeling we do is as 
I think much more about ruling players out than it is about like pointing to guys and saying that guy, you know what I mean? Guy, people who have poor statistical performance usually don't make it. People with good statistical performance, it's no guarantee, just sort of means they have a chance. And you then you kind of dig in and it's like, okay, this guy's got great numbers, but he's a 6'4", slow power forward. So, nah. You know, the the sort of, I, since he was one of the guys who was uh, a statistical marvel in like one of my first uh, draft classes with the boxes, the Jameel Warney test kind of. It's like, mm-hmm. is that going to work at the next level? And it's like, okay, well, if he becomes a, you know, a, a 38% three-point shooter from NBA range, then yeah, maybe he's got a place, but okay that's that's a guy i would i would prefer a Euroleague team to to discover if he's that guy rather than use draft capital on sure so not long in your book after your section that you talked about rebounding a little bit you did go into one about playmaking and adjusting what was once used for determining the level of how efficient a playmaker was off of assist to turnover ratio in your book you talk about an adjusted formula that takes potential assists into account as well to deviate away from only measuring if a player avoided adding to the turnover percentage, right? So I'm curious where you fall on the evaluation of a specific player, Cade Cunningham, in that aspect. Because if you just look at his assist-to-turnover ratio going back to college, that was a hot debate about, is he actually a good passer? If he's having like five assists to three turnovers in college, and even now the results, they they weren't in, in some aspects, they aren't promising for someone who's continuously built as a gifted passer and someone who is looked at as a viable offensive engine, not just a shooter or scorer. Where, where do you fall on him in, in that regard? I'm curious. Who's he playing with? <laughs> I mean, no, like, you know, there's, there's guys who have. It's a valid, very... valid question to ask. No, Oklahoma there, State, valid question. Yeah, no, but in, in Oklahoma State was, was, you know, there, okay. There's been prospects who have, you know, played with mediocre players around them and still managed but he just didn't he didn't just have mediocre players around him. He had like specific specifically mediocre players, like guys who both couldn't shoot and wanted to play with the ball in their hands. So it wasn't first of all, guys just missed shots. Second of all, like, you know, it, it's hard to track record scratches per 100 or whatever. But I have to think that some of the other perimeter guys on that Oklahoma State team would be pretty high on like the like he's you know, he's throwing the ball to to I I Isaac likely like would like to handle the ball and do some stuff. So Cade would, you know, break someone down, draw help, kick to the corner, and then not that the shot would be missed, it just wouldn't go up. Yep. So so on, on that level, you know, the the potential assists almost don't happen, even though like that should be a shot. He did what what more do you need him to do? Um, now this, this, this may seem like special pleading a little bit, but I think that this was a, uh, an unusual circumstance for a guy to be like that, that pedigree to play in a power conference. So the level of competition he's playing against is pretty high with that much of a dearth of talent around him. And that talent around him not only doesn't compliment him, it kind of actively blocks him. And unfortunately for him like the situation relative to the nba the situation isn't that much different in in detroit i mean there's yeah. not a lot of there's not a lot of shooting around him like you know jeremy grant is a is a ball stopper um sadiq bay is trying to explore the studio space this year a little bit and he's you know trying to you know understandably perhaps expand beyond a catch and shoot guy doesn't do kate any favors um yeah. and then he's often sharing the floor with another nominal point guard so um again these are 
you can you can go overboard with kind of contextual understanding in a way that becomes excuse making but i you know don't have much of a problem seeing him as a as a potential offensive engine still like there are there things that he can work on yeah is his handle a little bit loose can he become a better finisher on the basket does he need to be play a little stronger with the ball yes these these things i think are all from an observational standpoint you'd say yeah but um I'm still not really worried, I guess. Neither am I. And it's, it's one of those things that we're, a lot of people are asking this question and it's, it's not even Christmas yet. Like, first of all, he didn't even start out playing, you know, from the jump of the season, he was injured coming in, he missed the first few games and, you know, he, he's, he's had to come up to speed with a, a brand new cast of teammates. And you pointed out that, yeah, not exactly all of them are lighting it up as catch and shoot guys. So it's, I agree. It's it's a little too early, and that I'm, I'm assuming that yeah, that that's your full opinion on it, right? You would still give him the chance to kind of be yeah. the point guard of the team. And also, he's I mean, he's never he's he's been. We actually on on my podcast Nerdisher, we actually talked about this today, or uh, like with uh, James Edwards, the uh, beat writer from the Pistons, and and the way I, the way I put it is that he's kind of. Um, you know, there, there's there's some uh, there there's some players where you know you you listen to the singles of the album. And you get an idea, and he's he's an album cuts guy. Like you, you don't you don't always get the full. This guy is good just from like watching the the you know the the ends of plays and stuff like that. It's, he does a lot of like little subtle things that make you think, okay, this guy this guy knows what he's doing, and he's gonna be okay. Like yes, he's gonna you know uh, the team around him is gonna get better, and he's gonna get physically more mature. Like he's gonna. Like getting stronger, being an NBA weight program is something that, that is that's to me, be. that's the biggest thing that's yeah. holding him back right now. Like I like I think that's like he he has a frame that should add strength. Although I something I learned today is that he's apparently a vegan, which you know yeah. how how that uh, impacts adding strength, I don't know. Um but yeah, so um you know there are things you can see that that are that need to be improved, but it's also you take the whole of his game and you just have to be impressed. Now, that doesn't mean you're you're not more impressed at this point by Evan Mobley, who, you know, you had every player you have questions coming in about, you know, can they or can't they? And like, yeah, some of the questions about Cade are still questions. Like is his little bit of a loose handle, top line athleticism may be lacking. Uh Evan Mobley, uh, aside from the jump shot from deep still being a little wonky. Yeah, like, please please actually talk about him because like yeah. I, I didn't come into this podcast expecting to ask you about specific yeah. players necessarily, yeah. but he is a guy who broke a lot of statistical models last year in terms of yeah. his efficiency of college. But you, I mean, you there is a little bit you worry about like what what is he like? Was not a great rebounder in college. Some of that's contextual. Mm-hmm. He was playing in a too big system. Um, with I mean, his brother was the was really the 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 interior workhorse on that team, if I'm not mistaken, right? Correct. Um and. But you, I mean, the thing like, okay, is he going to be a five? He's a little light, doesn't rebound great. Is he going to be a four? Does he have the lateral movements? Because, um, you, you know, uh, very, very tall guys with high hips, sometimes you worry about lateral movement. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a question that's been answered. It's been answered like, yeah, no, that's going to, that's going to be fine. Um, and then just his, his, obviously his defensive feel is, is so advanced. So, while you know you still have, you're kind of you're still giving Cade time, like Mobley has has already checked those boxes that you didn't know 
what it was. So if you're going to do a redraft now, like, yes, you, you take Mobley because he's, you know, he's demonstrated some of the, he's answered some of the questions in a positive way already. Um, whereas Cage just hasn't fully answered them either way. Um, now, it doesn't mean that there's that you want to completely write off the fact that Mobley will definitely be the better player. Mm-hmm. I think in three years we might revisit this and think differently, but just he's he's shown himself to be more advanced at this point than relatively than than Kate is, and that you know maybe that's the bar just being in a different place uh, positionally. But at the same time, I think that that you know you talked about the con. I talked about the context Kate is in. Um, playing with another mobile big who can handle like more of the traditional like bang with the big guys duties like Jared exactly. Allen yeah that's been that's been huge like like we thought that would be a problem for him perhaps like they'd maybe get in each other's way and in, in, it hasn't worked out that way it's been almost a perfect synergy between the two um and that's you know that was that just kind of more the misconception of like two seven footers shouldn't be sharing the court with each other as much nowadays because like Mobley was very perimeter oriented going back to college like he he really didn't want to operate from like the free throw line in he kind of stayed back from the free throw line so like maybe it's just the whole two seven footers notion maybe I mean it was as much defensively with with the NBA going to like small switchy lineups mm-hmm. it, especially if you're worrying about Mobley's like lateral quickness like okay his lateral quickness is fine for a center who maybe switches some um uh we didn't know i i don't think we knew that it was like oh see he can play he can play the four and chase guys too um and then still recover and be like a a, you know a weak side rim protector um that's the part that's been you know more obviously more advanced than than we could have reasonably expected um, and that's a big part of why it's worked. And then also, like, I think, I think, you know, uh, a lot of people um, sort of undersold Jared, how good Jared Allen is. And he's, he's improved a lot also. I mean, he's, I think he's, I think he, at this point, if the, if they did all-star ballots now, I think he would make the, the Eastern Conference all-star team. Um, and I don't think anyone would have predicted that before the season, but he's, I mean, I think he's, you know, we underestimated him perhaps a little bit too. And he's always been a player that, that I think who had a higher skill level than he was necessarily given credit yeah. for. Like there's, there are these kind of dive and dunk bigs who can actually like handle the ball and make a play that we don't always give credit for such. Cause maybe they don't have good assist totals. Um, Robert Williams is another, another player like that who can kind of catch the ball in space and make a play. So is able to operate. Um, yeah. You know, in a, in a more versatile manner than, say, like a Clint Capella is. Yep. Um, but, but, but I, I digress. I, we were talking about Cade, and I don't know how we got to Jared Allen. Here we are. Well, we 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 got to Cade, then we went to Evan Mobley, then we went to, to Jared Allen and the Cavs, who are one of the best watches in the league this year. God, that team is. I, I was a year. I was a year too early on that bandwagon. I thought that last year would be a year where they could outperform expectations and then injuries just derailed that team the whole nine yards. But now you bring in Mobley, Okoro's all of a sudden like making like scoring 18 points per game and Garland has taken the leap and God, I love that team. But let's move on. So we were actually talking about 
the impact that a, a good player playing with not so good players can have on somebody entering the draft. So I actually want to skip ahead to this question. So, so many times the evaluations on players are weighted by a few games against certain opponents versus not taking a look at the larger sample size overall. And the hot topic right now in draft circles would be Patrick Baldwin. So very prominent example of this happening is scouts are likely going away. His lack of impact against Florida Colorado and now Rhode Island this week, much more than any game he'll play in conference in the Horizon League the rest of the year. So how fair is that criticism and where do you personally sit on the fence of context and a player's performance and trying to factor in some of the outside factors that can contribute to that as well, like uh, that lack of on-court success? Um, I mean, I think that um, probably um or if he's a if he's a draft like a first round draft prospect, he is he is too good for the Horizon League. Like that's that's um, and if he's not too good for the Horizon League, then that that's a problem. Um, so um, him like dominating in those games is almost table stakes. So then you have to like, is he just like, is he you know, is he beating up on on you know on lesser competition or or does he have like the top end stuff? to hang against the, the, the elite teams, which are, which are also the, the teams that have closer to NBA size and athleticism and the failure to do so is, is worrisome. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a couple, three games, the first month of his, of his freshman year, that doesn't like yep. determine everything, but it's something you worry about. And, you know, maybe hopefully they can, you know, make the tournament and play high level competition again at the end of the season. And then there might be, you know, maybe that's only a game or two, but then does it look better than maybe it has at, at some points? Like the, the, I didn't see the Rhode Island game, but I did. I heard it was not pretty for it. Um, <laughs> it it was not, just, an, not another, just, another statistical donut burger. Yeah. Well, and it's not, it, and it's not, you know, it's not just, you, know, you want to separate that kind of performance. Like, did he make shots or not versus yes. like, how did he get shots? And that's, you know, again, by our reports, that was the bigger kind of eye opener in a negative way was just inability to create separation. And like, you know, it's Rhode Island. It's not, you know, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, a, a stacked Kentucky team that, that, you know, that, that he's, that he's not able to do that against like fine team, but it's again, it's not, a, not a lot of NBA pros on, on that roster either. So that's, that's worrisome. It's, you just, you, you can't, that there's just something funky going on with that team and and i can't quite put my finger on it yet i have a i have a theory that hopefully i'll revisit at one point on this podcast but i definitely wanted to get your input on something like that so you wrote an entire chapter about the draft in your book that's a big reason why obviously i, I wanted to have you on this podcast and the the mixed results the draft has produced over the years there are so many factors at play but i do want to get your opinion on this. So you mentioned Havistro's study specifically in the book and the question asked from it of are teams getting worse at the draft? When in reality, I think maybe it's better to ask if the focus of evaluations has been put far too much on the long-term projection of prospects and not enough focus on who they are now as basketball players and finding better ways to get them involved in a rotation to get them minutes to develop the other skills. And there's so there's other factors that you even talked about in the book, off-court behavior, medical, etc. But do you think maybe that's the better question that we should be asking? So 
It, it's complicated because uh, this is sort of a, a question that that's almost a, a meta question that sits on top of draft <laughs> strategy is what are you aiming for? Yep. You know, um, if you're, you know, if you are a pretty good team that's looking to take the next step, maybe you like getting a guy who's going to be a good three and D or a serviceable three and D rotation guy. Maybe that's really what you're, you're, you're trying to do. If you're a team that's on the way up, that's fine, but you're really, you're really aiming at the right tail of distribution. Like that's, you know, oh, like people are bemoaning Oklahoma city kind of in their con continual tank tankage, right? Jay Alexander is pretty good, but Shea Alexander is not. And at this point, I think it's fair to say is unlikely to be a top five, top 10 type player in the NBA. And if you're a start, if you're a team that's starting from nothing, that's what you're aiming for. So kind of almost who cares? Like if, if a guy is like ready to play now and it, it's not, you're, you're aiming for, you're 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 aiming for like the what if he hits his 90th percentile outcome is going to make us mm -hmm. almost de facto a contender that's what you're if you're you're in that spot that's what you're drafting for and then you know at the for the teams that are already really good already championship level like yeah maybe then you're looking for someone who can step in right away that's although that i think that's generally speaking a misnomer um rookies tend to just be not good enough to contribute to playoff teams um Personally, I think a team that is that is uh, you know already at a chance championship level should uh, never make their own draft pick. Basically, I think you always do better by by moving it for a guy who you know can play now. Um, but the uh, the alternatively, like you're basically trying to um, pick someone who's going to at least maintain value while he's not playing, because if if you know. Um, Cam Thomas is is getting playing time for the Nets. Um, I would say that that in not ideal circumstance, like the Nets would prefer not to be in a situation where Cam Thomas has to get to make, get minutes, and he's he's done fine with those minutes. But um, if things are right with that team, then it's just he's he's going to be buried, you know. And so it's is this guy intriguing enough that if we want to make a move, he's a guy that yeah, no, I, I we'll take a shot on him. Is he, you know, like RJ Hampton was 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 a, a big part of the of the Aaron Gordon trade last year, despite not playing very much for Denver beforehand. And I think that's sort of the type you're aiming for. So, um, in so I I'm not a big fan, I guess, of aiming for trying to hit singles and doubles. Generally speaking, I think is is if I'm going to summarize. That uh, <laughs> that's a little queen to one thing. I think sure. that, like you know you can you can find like those are the guys you can find after they've proven that they're good. Um, there's there's sort of this is there's a, there's a piece of wisdom I, I about you know uh, con contract negotiations in hockey that I think applies here, which is you know the, some smart people say like you never give long term contracts to third and fourth liners. Because you, if you, you want to give give money out to a first and second liner over a number of years, that's fine. Uh, because even if they if if they're a little bit worse, they're still third and fourth liners. Like a third or fourth liner who is a little bit worse than you thought he was is not an NHL player, and now you're stuck with him. So why are you aiming for kind of 
a, a, a seventh man with your draft pick. You know, if you miss, he's nothing. Um, <laughs> you know, if yeah, like if you're if you're aiming higher, then yeah, you still miss and you could be nothing. But if if you miss just a little bit, then he he falls into that that uh, that sort of seventh eighth man rotation category, and you still have the chance at the the higher end outcomes, which is really where just by by operation of the salary cap, where the value of draft picks typically is. So in in talking about the valuable uh, the value of draft picks, I actually wrote this down as a question because you have another chapter in your book dedicated to cap and player value. Um, the draft, in my opinion, can be a boon in roster construction if done properly. And I think Desmond Bain is a great example of that. Somebody in Memphis who's on a rookie contract and clearly is providing great value as a starter caliber guard who was selected at the end of the first round. So I guess more of like a, a historical or type of question. When do you think like that shift happened in front offices in regards to putting more emphasis and value behind first round picks? Because you get the feeling now more than ever, they seem to hold much more value as assets in general, right? Like there seems to be that shift the last like three, four years. Not everyone's coming up with all these crazy trades where we're trying to throw in a bunch of first round picks unless we're getting like a guaranteed superstar back in return. Because maybe even if you're not the upper echelon of a contender, maybe you can use a pick like that at the end of the first round to get somebody like a Desmond Bain at a quality player to the rotation. Wow, that's like four different questions at once. Um, so like Desmond Bain, Desmond Bain is an interesting one. Um, so there there are players of you know various archetypes that work. Now the 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 thing is is you know how many Desmond Bain ish Desmond Bain ish prospects have there been that don't? And so we tend to focus on the ones that make it and not you know. Um, the, and not sort of do the calculation of okay, of this type of player, how many of them are are good by their second or third year? If we do that and come up with that calculation, yeah, maybe maybe there was something discernible about Desmond Bain that put him on a higher level than that sort of archetype of player. And you know, you can you can certainly make the argument for that. Um, but I, I do think it is it is sometimes a a flaw, in, uh, sort of post hoc evaluation of the drafts. Like, well, that guy worked out. It's like, well, yeah, some some like one dimensional scores are going to. And not that this is Desmond Bain, but different player type. Some sort yeah. of one dimensional high volume scores are going to be good enough about at that that they are valuable NBA player. Most won't. I've always sort of been uh, at least with picks sort of higher up the draft. I'm okay missing out on that. Like, okay, one in ten of we'll pick a number. One in ten of them is going to make it. I'll let I'll let someone else figure out which one it is, and I'll I'll go a different direction where there's more of maybe a better bet. Um, so that's you know why a guy like Desmond Bain like like falls like you know for every, how many for every Desmond Bain how many Aaron Neesmiths are there I guess is, is sort of the way you would you know, you could almost look at it from that draft. Sure. So another interesting question that I wanted to ask these last two drafts, at least on the surface, albeit incredibly early to properly judge seem to have been loaded with potential starter level contributors on NBA teams. And even if that does bear out to be the case, when we look back a few more years down the road, that's usually not the trend. When you go back and look at virtually every other draft in history, the game seems to be 
the most successful that it's ever been when you factor in the outside shooting craze, the sports science developments that have occurred to help prolong players' careers through injuries, the positive trend in athleticism amongst players nowadays. Do you think we're in the midst of this type of era where we're going to start to see a larger influx of potential starter-level talent, or do you think the last few years are outliers and that's not really a trend that should be expected to continue? And I'll say the reason why I'm asking that question is because, like, draft Twitter is always a buzz, right? They're, they're, they're naming out, like, 30 to 45 to 50 guys should be, like, first-round caliber picks, right? Like, all these crazy, talented players. And usually that's, like, that's, that's not the case. That's not how history bears out. Optimism bias. Optimism bias is a hell of a drug. Um, no, I think <laughs> I think yes. Yeah, some some classes are going to turn out better than others, but I don't think that there's a. Um, considering it's it's sort of it's all relative. There's no like standard of quality that is sure. always a starter. Like you know, it's maybe I mean it's it's as much a function as the players kind of, uh, you know, shaking out of the other end in terms of how many spots there are. Um, you know, if, if, if we're in a particular spot where, you know, a higher than normal number of kind of rotation players are either aging out or retiring of, of, from that sort of, then just naturally more younger players are going to fill in. And that's sort of, uh, exogenous to the, the, almost the quality of the draft class itself. So that's, that's one thing that's going on. The other, I mean, the other thing is just, you know, the one group of kids might have avoided injuries better, might have found better college programs, better AEU programs to develop their skills in an NBA sort of facing way than, than another group. And I think that's, I mean, there's enough kind of randomness in that whole process that, um, you know, and then of course there's, you know, there's, there's kids like whether it's players, like whether it's Cade, you know, who are able to, develop in an imperfect environment or like John Morant, who's able to develop in low against a lower level of competition. You know, there are some outliers like that, but for the most part, there's, there's a lot of, it's sort of uh, a lot of individual decisions sort of aggregate to determine like the, the, the overall, overall success, I guess, of a draft class. And I don't see any particular reason to think that that's, that the the underlying math of how many spots there are opening each year is going to change much, if that makes sense. Like the, no, it does. The, the the trends here. I mean, like it. Like if anything, it should be like if if like the sports science is genuinely like prolonging primes and careers, then you should almost expect like like almost lower success rates just because if, with lower turnover in those spots. You know, now we're talking. Well, there's you know, this draft class has 15 rotation spots to fill instead of 20. You know, so, um, but I don't, I, I think, you know, there's generally speaking, there's, you know, a draft class will produce 20-ish rotation guys of which, you know, f- you know, five will be high-end starters of which of those three will be all-stars of which maybe one will be like a, you know, a franchise level superstar. Like, you know, maybe every third draft or so, you'll get one of those just on average. And I don't think that, I don't really see that math changing because the the composition of the league hierarchy has been pretty stable over time in terms of uh, you know it's one of the bigger projects i do for the athletic every year is my player tiers and part of the reason that the tiers are the size they are is that's a pretty persistent um 
sort of stratification of the league, you know, like top five players, top 15 players, top 40 players, top 70, like those are some natural cut points we kind of see year after year. And, you know, the, if the classes filling in from the draft sort of reinforce that almost. And that's the, that's the range of outcomes that we tend to see. Fair enough. I, I, I hope that, <laughs> <laughs> I hope that I haven't. Did I, did, I, did, I, did I rain on parades there that says that this draft no. class is like, there's also, I mean, this is also like every draft class. It starts, you know, like a year ago. I don't know about this draft class. And then by, you know, by February, I had a draft class pretty good. There's about 60, 70, 80 guys who can play. It's like, eh, yeah, but most of them won't be able to. Like, that's just how it kind of works out. And it's no, because that's usually the side of the argument I'm on too, though. Like, I'm doing this valuation of trying to give every prospect their, their fair shake. And I, I tend to be, more positive and optimistic when I'm actually talking about specific evaluations of the player and, and outcomes and what they can be. But when you look at it through the lens of what's more likely to happen than not, a lot of these guys are, are not going to work out in that favor in terms of being a starter in the NBA. You'll have a number that will be starters. And as you mentioned, fewer numbers that will be all-stars, fewer numbers than that will be a franchise changing player. There, there are a number who can you know, be role players. Like there are spots six through 15 to fill out an NBA roster for each team, but in the likelihood of being a starter, it's, it's very hard to determine. And I'm sure you doing work in the draft is I'm sure some of those questions you kind of get, kind of get annoyed having to answer them or find answers to them over and over again. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's a tough balance because on one hand, like less players will make it than we think will. Yep. We tend to, but more players have a chance to than we think will also. So it's sort of it's sort of uh, you know like it's not it's not just the top twenty players in the draft that made it. There's probably like sixty the sixty guys who get drafted and then twenty five more who all have like some degree of chance of being like a like a like a reasonable and like rotation level NBA player. And yeah, the what the actual and un, sort of unknowable. Uh, per, percentage of that is is will vary and probably and will decline pretty steeply after the first you know five ten picks but though that there are a lot of players so the things that people are seeing about all these players about why they might make it aren't wrong it's just almost they've they they, they've the the context of of what like level of output, what like where on the distribution of possible outcomes this player will have to be to make it. I think that's the part that gets underestimated. Like, yeah, there's there's 89 guys who could be, but most of them would have to hit like 75th percentile outcome or higher. So like, and that's what makes it tricky because you're like, yeah, you're right. That guy could make it, but he probably won't just, you know, law of averages. So how do you, like, how do you, like maintain the optimism to keep trying to find these guys, knowing most of them will, for lack of a better term, fail. Is is that that sort of it, it necessitates almost like a like an oh, irrational exuberance, um, and I, you don't want to like you don't want to kill that from the people who are doing the the evaluation, but sort of the meta evaluation, sort of the contextualizing of all these uh, like these valuations that that come in to ultimately make the decision, you kind of have to mentally, okay, scale it back a little bit because, you know, he's not wrong to like this guy. He just has, is not properly calibrated as to what that, what the potential he's seeing means. So scouting itself 
the NBA draft is as imperfect of a science as there is. I'm, I'm probably crazy to want to continue to pursue something like this for a career, but call, call me crazy. I just love it too much. But you obviously have a lot of experience studying the game. And obviously you have accumulated at least a better understanding as to popular indicators that can lead to more educated decisions on who to draft. Albeit there's so many factors that we could talk about, obviously, but what are like, what are like one or two things that scouts like myself, myself should pay closer attention to when we're evaluating prospects that we might overlook, or maybe we don't put as much stock into there. There there are any tips that maybe you could give scouts like me on evaluating guys. Very wary of buying non-functional athleticism. Mm. Like there are tremendous run it. Like if a guy's a tremendous run and jump athletes athlete, and he blocks a shot every third game, what's going on there? <laughs> you know, he's got yeah. six nine long arms and has blocked four shots all season. There's a disconnect there. Now, now that maybe it's. Maybe there's there's a there's something going on. Maybe like he's playing, you know, the the top of a zone or something like that, and so therefore just doesn't get enough get as many chances to to do that. But at the same time, it's like you have to ask yourself if he's got this physical talent that's not manifesting itself in like you know production, quote unquote, on the floor. And from a statistical standpoint, why not? Like if he if he could play, it would show up, and that's that's sort of the the sort of the basis of the of using statistical projections is like you know the guy who's going to be better tomorrow was probably better yesterday too mm-hmm. and better is imperfect but the stats tell us something you know how players get to these you know they they both uh you know playing time tells us who the coach thinks can play that's 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 not an indicator that that is absent that signal um you know he ends up with some steals some blocks some rebounds he's got a nose for the ball whether that's you know Again, whether that's sort of mental quickness and anticipation or kind of being twitchy, like you have to, you do have to kind of parse that out a little bit, but there's something going on that's allowing this person to either be in the right place early or get there faster than the competition to be able to make these plays. So that's what we're identifying here and sort of not getting fooled by sort of the quote unquote visible potential that doesn't like show up in actually doing things. That was a fantastic answer to that question. And I definitely feel smarter being able to listen to you, Seth, and ask you some of these questions because they did pop up while I was reading your book. I can't, if, if I could sit down and have a discussion with you about everything in the book, I certainly would, but I don't think we, we'd have enough time to, to, to do that. I don't think you want to talk about or rehash some of the things either, like your chapter on defense. I could tell you were aggravated <laughs> just writing all of that stuff out. Um, but, but it was insightful nonetheless. And, um, Oh, you, you say you look like you're going to have an answer for that. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I, you know, the, the, I mean, I mean, defense is hard to write about because it's it's hard to evaluate. I, that that actually wasn't, frankly, the actually the honestly the 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 more painful parts to write were well. First of all, the the chapter on like uh, adjusted plus minus methodology was was hard to write just because that's a that's a you know that that is easily the densest chapter in the book, and there's kind of no way around that given the subject matter. And so that was, that was hard to write just to try to make it both intelligible and accurate at the same time. But then frankly, the title chapter is very hard to write just because there's so much to pack in there 
and to get that to tell like, like a consistent story was was actually I mean that was the last chapter I finished because it was in many ways the most difficult to write because there was the most to say. But that was the best that in my opinion that was the best chapter of the book because it was kind of like a it was kind of like a history lesson as I said it was really you going through and monitoring different trends that have been happening over the last 10 15 years and that was great information to be able to read and and get better insight on because as you'd send the book I can't I won't spoil I refuse to spoil everything but the mid-range isn't dead the mid-range isn't dead and I was glad to be able to read more of the backstory on why that was and I truly thank you for writing such a great book for everybody to be able to read I can't recommend it enough I know some people on the no ceilings team like Tyler Metcalf just got his copy of your book in the mail today and he's excited to read it as I was talking to him about some things and I, I, I couldn't thank you enough, Seth, for wanting to come on my podcast for a little bit and share some some insight with me. Um, one more time, if you could tell my audience where they can where they can buy the book, because truly they they really should. Uh, people seem to have had the best luck in terms of getting it delivered quickly uh, via either Amazon or direct from the publisher Triumph Books. It's also available in sort of every popular e-reader format if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, and I just found out I uh, th there's not an audiobook available yet. Um, there are talks to do one sometime in the next I don't know how long. Um, the good the best news for me as far as that is there's nobody that wants me to actually do the reading of it. <laughs> for, for, this is I've, I've said this before another another but if that that was a condition of of there being an audiobook that I had to read it, there would be no audiobook. Um, just like it's it's. Um, is this bit... a book you really want to listen to as an audio book, though? I feel like you kind of want to have it in front of you, be able to take notes and, and jot things down. I, you know, so all, some people, some people, like enough people have asked about an audio format that that it's like really. You know, I don't, I don't, I do not consume analytics content well in audio format, but some people might. Auditory listeners, I'm not an auditory listener. I do know that, so I, I'm a learner. So, but but Seth, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. And thank you everyone out there listening to this episode of the Draft Deeper podcast. If you aren't following me on Twitter already, please do so at Draft Deeper. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. And definitely subscribe, stay in touch, stay engaged. There's plenty more draft content coming. We're only approaching Christmas time. We have so much left in the draft process from now until June 23rd. 2022 so definitely stay engaged stay talking with me appreciate all of you listening out there thank you so much hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week